Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Saw you there And the laughter seems to fill the air Beyonce was born on September 4th 1981. I'll never forget it because I used to sing when Tina was pregnant. I'm an okay singer, you know. Uh, I used to sing Smokey Robinson, Here I Go Again. And actually, it's like six, seven months, feel her moving and crawling and stuff. And I always say, that's why you have perfect pitch, it's because of me. So I used to sing, saw you there, and the laughter seems to fill the air. Say hi. hi. Leave those bees alone, Beyonce. When Beyonce was just a young girl, her parents, Matthew and Tina Knowles, moved into their new home on Parkwood Drive. Parkwood, which is the street we live on, and this is our dream house. We really love this one. Parkwood. It's a street in Houston's Third Ward, a diverse upper-middle-class neighborhood full of large houses and winding streets. Matthew sold medical equipment, and Tina ran a hair salon. Salons is calling for Beyonce. Their house lies just south of a bayou. Nearby, there's a park where Beyonce and her little sister Solange would play. Yes, Beyonce? Let's have a race. You're going to have a race? Uh-huh. Okay. Where? Come here to the tree. What tree? That first tree, the big tree. When does an ordinary little girl racing in the park begin the journey to becoming a superstar? See how fast Beyonce is. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is Making Beyonce. All right, get on the march, get set, go. Beyonce Knowles Carter is one of the most successful and iconic entertainers of our time. She's won more Grammys than nearly any other performer. And the Grammy goes to... Grammy goes to... Grammy goes to... Do you want to do it? Uh, you take it, Gwen. Okay. Halo. Drunk in love. Lemonade. Dangerously in love. Beyonce. Her live shows are elaborate and exhilarating. She's a media mogul, a philanthropist, a feminist hero, and she's only 38 years old. She is a legend. In this season of Making, we follow Beyonce Knowles from her pre-Destiny days to her emergence onto the world stage. How'd she get there? We'll speak with people involved throughout her early career. Beyonce had the soul, that soul thing that uh, that you just can't buy. We'll explore the early triumphs and challenges. We got off that plane like we had hit the jackpot of all jackpots. I mean, literally, when the camera turned off of them, they boo-hooed. 
how she began her ascent to the national stage with her group, Destiny's Child. I knew with Destiny's Child, if you just saw them for yourself on that stage, giving you everything they have, because that's what they did, you were going to be a fan, period. Her journey from talent shows to the top of the music charts. Episode one, uh, Girls' Time. Well, Beyonce, uh, as with Solange, at a young age, my former wife and I surrounded them with things we thought that they would enjoy. Beyonce loved to sing and dance. So when she was little, we put her in a dance troupe. They actually brought Beyonce to dance class because she was a very quiet, shy child. It's around 1988. In a Houston-area dance studio, instructor Darlette Johnson is teaching a group of children to dance. Darlette is keeping them all in formation, both figuratively and literally. One of those children is Beyonce. She had been dancing with me for a little while and I still didn't know she could sing. By then, I think she was seven. Darlette still remembers that little girl in a leotard. She was the last one in class that day, and I was just sweeping and, you know, just ending the day. And I was humming, which I cannot sing or hum. And she finished a song for me. And I think it was uh, Been Around the World, Been Around the World. Lisa, Lisa, been around the world, and I, I. It's Lisa Stansfield. I can find my baby. And of course, I still can't sing as you can hear now. And this child, she hit that note, and oh my goodness. And I literally dropped the broom. I startled her. She, you know, she jumped. Beyonce remembers this moment, too. Here she is on Ellen in 2008 when she was reunited with Miss Darlette. And my dance teacher, she was like, baby, sing, sing for me. I heard you over there singing to the track. Sing for me. And she wouldn't sing. She wouldn't sing. She just looked at me. And I promised her a dollar. One dollar. I promised her a dollar to sing. And I did. And um, I looked like, wow, wow. And she was like, you can really sing. I told Tina and I told Matthew, this child can sing, Beyonce can sing. And they said, yeah. Oh, yeah, she sings around the house. No, 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 she can really sing. And then, you know, it's okay. And I said, can I put it in a dance competition or a singing competition? I said, oh, yeah, sure. And she told me to perform at, at a talent show, and I started performing. I fell in love with the stage. And I loved having a mic in my hand and, and performing in front of an audience. Her father, Matthew Knowles, recalls the first time he and Beyonce's mom, Tina, actually saw their daughter on stage. Well, it was elementary school here in Houston. And Beyonce was seven years old. 
Some of the students were 12, 13 years old. And so we were sitting in the audience. Beyonce was getting really bored and restless and was wanting to hurry up and perform. And she says, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, I really want to get this over with so I can win my trophy and win my $100. And we were like, how do you know you're going to do that? She says, I don't. And sure enough, when she got on the stage... She really put on the show... And our parents, they were blown away. We were all screaming and jumping, and we were very excited. But it's so ironic because this child could come on the stage and and become this diva, so to speak, and then leave off the stage and become just as quiet. And to this day, she's still the same way. Beyonce has said in interviews that being on stage and performing actually helps her get past her shyness. It's as if she needed the stage to bring out her inner extrovert, like kind of a superhero lurking inside. And every superhero has a name. Beyonce's was Sasha Fierce. And of course, every superhero has an origin story, when and where they began. This is that moment. Beyonce, on stage, she she just become just fierce. It was... The first time Sasha Fierce came out. I like the name that she gave herself, Sasha Fierce, because that's what she becomes. What Matthew and Tina saw on that stage that day blew them away. She was absolutely fierce on the stage and did win her $100 and did win her first place trophy. Suddenly, his little girl had gone from the wallflower in the corner to absolutely owning the stage. They worked so hard with developing her and getting her additional training. Tina and Matthew decided to support their daughter's passion. And according to Matthew, that's what it was. Not a hobby, not a passing interest, a passion. You know that it's a hobby when you have to tell them to go to practice. And Beyonce showed that it was passion. We got her a vocal coach. And... With their permission, I was dragging her all over town to dance competitions and did the song and dance category. They had pageants where they had talent. I wanted any and everybody to hear this beautiful baby with this golden voice. All when she hit that stage, you knew that she was there. It doesn't exist anymore, but back in the 80s and 90s in Beyonce's hometown, there was a major annual talent competition. It literally was like the Grammys of Houston, and it was called the Sammy Davis Jr. Awards, the Sammys. When I first met Beyonce, it was at the Sammys. This is Ashley Davis, another young hopeful. She was eight years old at the time, just a year older than Beyonce. We were at the competition and it was the reception and she just came up to me and she just started talking to me. And when you're young, you you really just make friends, you know? (laughs) Beyonce did, I'll never forget it, her voice. She sang, imagine, imagine all the people. She sang that. And I was always going towards Whitney Houston. When in doubt, I was singing Whitney Houston. It was one of those songs that got me my category, where I won my category. And Imagine was the song that got her to win her category. The winner is Beyonce Knowles, female pop vocalist. In video of the acceptance speech, a pint-sized Beyonce is at a lectern, propped up there, holding tight. 
almost as if she'd fall given a light wind. She doesn't fall. I would like to thank the judges for picking me, my parents who I love. I love you, Houston. The following year, Beyonce returned to the awards. I want to welcome everybody to the Sammys. I know you guys are excited as I am. Every time I said this woman's name, I got a terrific round of applause. Tonight she's going to be Beyonce is set to perform Home from the musical and film The Wiz. Her name is Beyonce Knowles. The curtain rises and an eight-year-old Beyonce is on stage dead center. She's wearing a bedazzled version of Dorothy's iconic blue dress with blue bows and her pigtailed hair. She ends with a spin. There's no place like home in Houston, Texas. Thank you. Beyonce Knowles. No wonder she got a big round of applause every time I said her name. She asked me backstage if I'd sign something for her, but frankly, I think I better get her to sign something for me now before she starts charging for it. Word began to spread about this young girl with an amazing voice and captivating stage presence. It's the early 90s, and Beyonce is nine years old. Matthew and Tina got a proposition out of the blue from some women venturing into the music business. The women had a vision, but their vision didn't involve taking home trophies from talent shows. They had their sights aimed much higher. They wanted to build this band around Beyonce and make it all young in vogue, as in vogue was the hot female band at the time. female vocal groups were big at the time. I mean, huge, with one glaring omission. Back then, the only groups that were out that were teens were the boys and ABC. The women who'd approached Matthew and Tina were Deborah Lede and Denise Seals. They told the Knowles that they were going to go after a niche in the market that nobody seemed to be hitting. There were no child girl bands. They even had a name for the group, Girls' Time, T-Y-M-E. Clever misspellings of names were a big thing back then, too. Again, it was the early 90s. You had Color Me Bad with two Ds, Farsides, P-H and Y, and all of those Prince songs where he uses letters instead of words. To put together a group like this was not a cheap venture, so the women brought in a financial backer. Andretta Tillman. And they also needed a music producer, someone who knew how to put an album together. Uh, my name is Alonzo Jackson. Most people call him Lonnie. I pretty much, I mean, I developed Girls' Time and, and, and produced the whole thing. Soon after getting hired, Lonnie recruited a guy who was working at the same studio he was. Well, my name is Tony Moore, a.k.a. Tony Moe. They call me Tony Moe. 
but Tony Moore is my name. And uh, the role with Girls Time was a songwriter and producer. Meanwhile, Beyonce was doing some recruiting of her own. She hit up a friend who she'd met at the Sammy Awards. Well, I found out about the group really through Beyonce. <laughs> Today, she performs under the name Tamar. But back then, she just went by Ashley Davis, the girl from the pageant. And I remembered auditioning and getting the part on the spot. I just was so excited to sing in a girl's group. When I joined, I was told they were looking for another lead singer. I was, I was kind of like, whatever happened? I was like, okay, great. You know, if you needed me to sing a song, I sang a song. If you needed me to sing background, I sang background. Tony Moe. The singer with the big voice was really in back then, the powerhouse, the Whitney Houston type of vocalist. And so Ashley came up under that. She was just a fantastic singer. She always was a wailer, which means she had the voice that could, you know, could fill up a room, which was, you know, the, the strong voice, you know, the power voice. Girls' time was slowly coming together. Emphasis on slowly. Some girls made the cut. Others didn't quite work out. And, you know, over the period of a year, year and a half, well, there must have been, gosh, 30 different members because it was like a constant change every week of young kids. By the time they were done auditioning and ferreting out those who didn't quite fit, they were down to six young black girls, each with a different set of skills to add to the group. Lonnie Jackson. Three of the girls could sing and three of them were rappers. And all of them would dance. One of the girls brought on as a rapper came with something that none of the other girls had. Again, Tony Mo. She had like a little power. You know, she had like a little recognition, which was Latavia Robertson. Latavia, I feel like she added the sass. She gave us that edge. And Latavia, she was on TV and she had a, a commercial for a perm called Jazz for Me. I'm on style, body to shine. I look that totally on mine. Hair so soft, silky and free. I want something just for me. Just for me. And it was just all over the TV. You know, if you listen and watch Soul Train or you look at anything ethnic, you would always see Latavia. Oh, my gosh. She was that girl that I always wish I could have been where, like, I spoke my mind. Lonnie Jackson. Well, Latavia had that same thing that Beyonce has, which is just natural attitude. I mean, she's a character. Latavia has two cousins, Nikki and Nina. To round out the rappers. They were sisters. I just remember they could dance their butts off, you know. They could really, really dance. Then, on the singing side, they found a girl who had a pretty voice. But she'd have to overcome some big hurdles if she was going to make it in girls' time. I remember thinking Kelly was just so shy. She was completely shy. Like, she'll tell you she was shy, you know. Ashley's talking about Kelly Rowland. Both she and Latavia Robertson, the then-rapper, would eventually become founding members of Destiny's Child, along with Beyoncé. But the Kelly Rowland of girls' time... You could tell she was very observant and just trying to see what things were about. And at the same time, she wasn't going to talk to you before you talked to her. She was that kind of shy. <laughs> Producer Lonnie Jackson. She really didn't sing a whole lot. Back then, she was doing a lot more backgrounds and that type of thing. I don't think, dang, I can't even think of a record that Kelly saw on back then. 
she really had two left feet at the time. To see her now, like, it's just, I am so, out of all the girls, I'm so excited to see how she has just, like, blossomed into her own. And then there was, of course, the girl sharing the lead role in the group with Ashley, Beyonce Knowles. Beyonce, people don't know, like, the way she was today is the way she was when she was little. She was outgoing then, and on stage, she's that way. Songwriter Tony Moe. Beyonce was the finesse, the kind of the deep voice to start a song off and always was... So she always had the, the deeper tone. And when I gave her something to sing, she articulated it very well. Beyonce was always amazing from that first day. Producer Lonnie Jackson. Once she got the timing part down, everything was easy for her because she naturally sings with passion. That's who she is. She just, she just had it. It's like she had been here before, so attitude, her work ethic, and just always eager to learn. If you were a singer that walked in the room, she would pull you to the side and ask you to sing a riff, and she'd repeat it and run off and figure it out and come back and just keep bugging you. I had to literally, and after some of the sessions that we did, pick her up and carry her to her room and make her go to bed. She did not want to ever stop working. She always had her, her own thing, her own little lane. Beyonce had the soul. That soul, that soul thing that uh, that you just can't buy. Now, with the whole team in place, rehearsals for Girls' Time moved to the Knowles' home on Parkwood Drive. That's when we kind of started. It was right away. It was like they were grooming us right away. I remember us starting to record right away. Songs were already written. I think once they found their members, it, it was off selling at that point. Just ahead on Making Beyonce, Girls' Time gets serious. At the Knowles house, practice was on the regular, and it was hard. During the summer, when the girls were all out of school, they'd rehearse nearly every single day. Well, to show y'all that we're not doing no Millie Vanilla, we're going to kick a little something like this. It is girls! In home video taken at the time, you can see the girls rehearsing on a small stage the Knowles built in their backyard. You've seen Beyonce's homecoming movie, right? Okay, so picture that, but with eight-year-olds. And if you haven't seen Beyonce's Homecoming movie, press pause on this podcast right now, go watch it, and come back. Okay, cool. Their producer, Lonnie, would work with the singers to sharpen their skills, especially his two leads. Everything was just constant. It was heck of repetitive. No, that note is flat. I need more attitude on this note. Or give me this, your timing is off. You know, it's always something. Beyonce was great for that. And Ashley was too. Her timing, Ashley timing really was good. When we did a flat note, he wouldn't even let the whole phrase, he would stop. And he would like, all right, start over. That was flat. Nope, start over. And so we had to train. We were fast on our feet. Um, or he would sing a note and, you know, you could feel him. No, you're going to get this. We're not going to give you another note. You're going to get this note. They even brought in an outside vocal coach who would eventually live with them at the Knowles' home. 
And then an even more intense workout regimen was incorporated into their routine. And Girls Time Legend, it's called Boot Camp. Tony Moe and Ashley Davis explain. Boot camp. Oh, man, let me tell you about that. I forgot about that. It's, I want to say it started pretty early on. I can't remember exactly. The story of the boot camp, what we would do. I remember because they stayed near the bayou in Third Ward. We would get up, and every day we work with the girls. We run them. We did a lot of running and singing at the same time. So they can get used to being on stage, still performing, and still singing and belting those songs out, which made them all stronger vocalists. But I think Lonnie was the one that really pushed the agenda of us having to sing on that daggone bayou and I used to hate it. Oh, I didn't like him for that. The ideas would just come to me and I just had to get creative with stuff. I would do things like when we were practicing like dance stuff, I'd I'd have a choreographer come in and then I'd put pillars up in between all the girls so they couldn't look at each other and I could start a song when I got it all together and put each of them in different rooms with a camera and they would be all in sync. I had them that tight. Well, they were practicing quite a bit. I don't want to say it was seven days a week, but I know they were practicing quite some time. There's some family archive from this time. It shows the girls all lined up, practicing songs and routines in the Knowles home. They're working out the details of some routine or another. One of the girls gets injured. But she fights through it. They seem to pick up where they left off. Pain shaken off, the girls are back in formation and nailing it. They're tough. Beyond technical skills, beyond the fun, performances were about style. Understanding the impact of a performer on an audience, the moves. Lonnie Jackson says he would work with Beyonce to help her develop that skill set. I would sit her down and she would look at Michael Jackson uh, videos and talk about, you know, just his passion with him and her being the same age he was when he was singing those records and trying to get her to uh, deliver with that uh, kind of conviction, that passion that he had. And we'd sit down, she would ask questions, and I just kept drilling her and kept, if we were dancing or doing something. Because we looked at so many visual stuff and uh, listened to a lot of audio, I could easily say, well, give me something that's kind of similar. She'd be able to pull from different places and kind of emulate what they did and put her spin on it. The other person in the house, of course, was Beyonce's mother, Tina. And thanks to her, it wasn't all work from sunup to sundown. We always had the best snacks. I think Miss Tina always made us the best snacks. I know her and my mom would always talk about the wardrobe and what we would wear. We had a lot of downtime. We would watch TV, and then we would get up and rehearse, and then we would relax and watch more TV and get back up and rehearse. We liked each other. There was no animosity. There was no tension. We had slumber parties together. We laughed. We played jokes on the producers. We acted silly in the hotel room. If we were supposed to be asleep, we didn't snitch on each other. When it was like, hey, you guys have a show, calm down. We we didn't know what calm down was. You know, we would... I mean, (laughs) we were typical girls. I mean, yeah, typical girls. Tina Knowles was like a second mother to the rest of the girls in girls' time. She'd let them perform shows at her hair salon, headliners, 
their first taste of the limelight. I mean, they set us up like we were the stars of the world. I mean, okay, you have to look this and you have to do this. And we were really primed and primed for this. And all these women are in there looking at us, getting their hair done. And, and we just treated it like we had arrived, I guess. I mean, it was literally like the coolest setup. She had the coolest shop. She had all the women there getting their hair done. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. The girls would get tip money and often go and spend it at Beyonce's favorite place, Astro World, a theme park in Houston at the time. If you've been to a Six Flags anywhere, it was kind of the same thing. Where in the world but when it was time to put all their rehearsals and lessons into action, they went into the studio. They'd recorded a few songs while in Houston with Lonnie and the team, but now it was time to level up. To get there, they'd need some help. I was trying to find new talent that I could work with and develop and then sell off to a record company and get them a major record deal. This is Arnie Frager. At the time, he ran The Plant, a legendary recording studio in the San Francisco Bay Area. And at that time, there were a number of like teenage little boy bands that sang and danced. And I decided that the one thing that I didn't see out there was a little girl band. And so I was looking for a young group that could sing and dance that were girls. And I found one, only they were in Houston and I was in San Francisco. I'd heard about him from a couple of people. They knew a guy in Oakland that had knew the girls, and I heard about him. I met him. His name was Alonzo. Again, producer Lonnie Jackson. When I called the plant to book the studio, Arnie Frager obviously got on the phone to book the session. The plant was packed with some of the biggest acts of the time. And he told me that he had mixed prints. So I said, well... I'll take a Prince mix any day. Lonnie flew to the Bay Area to mix some of the girls' time songs with Arnie. And when Arnie finally heard the girls for the first time... He kept asking me how old the kids were, and I said, they're nine years old. The girls singing is nine, ten years old. And he said, I can't believe that. They were amazing. At that age, you don't expect that kind of polish. In particular, there was one little girl in the group who was Miss Personality just stood out from the pack, and that was that was Beyonce. Beyonce, she didn't sing like a kid. She was like a little Michael Jackson. I saw in the group that Beyonce was clearly the star. She was just the personality that you were drawn to. She had a flair for singing. It wasn't as much a pure hitting every note on key, but she had style, okay? She had a thing. Arnie's reach appealed to Lonnie, and Lonnie's musical abilities appealed to Arnie. So the two partnered up. They formed a production company and called it A&A &A Music. That's for Arnie and Alonzo. Together they'd work to get the group the big prize they were seeking, a major label record deal. It was decided that the girls should all travel to Arnie's studio in California. Girls' time was heading west. And then I flew all of them, all six girls here. We put them up at a place called the Holiday Inn Express. Everything really started happening 
when I brought them up to the Bay Area. Once they'd settled in, Ashley says the girls made their way over to the plant. It was like in a wooden building. It looked very expensive. And I remember walking up to the door like, wow, you know, I think it was near the water. And I remember seeing Michael Jackson's plaque, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. So the kids are walking around, looking at the records, and it's kind of hard to keep track of which studio they were in because there's four studios, and they're running around the building like kids do. And that's sort of like herding feral cats. It was just like crazy times, and then we were recording. Now, at this point, perhaps we should stop and talk about just how much all of this was costing. We've got months and months of work and talent here, all devoted to the nurturing of a group of six talented but still very young girls. Just bringing the girls to Sausalito to finish out an album's worth of songs? That wasn't going to be cheap. Cost estimates that we've heard, running up to and including Sausalito, ran past $100,000. And this is in 1991 dollars. Put that in today's money, we're talking upwards of nearly 200 grand. A lot was at stake now that they were in California. And roles in the group began to realign as the sound and the songs for girls' time were coming together. And they included a couple of real standouts. Tony Moe, the group's songwriter, explains. Sunshine and Boyfriend became their main songs. The boyfriend song was the one that we felt initially so good about because we thought we had something there with them. Beyonce started off with, So fine, baby, he drives me crazy. I like it. And Ashley will come in with the second verse, you know what I mean? Get to know you better than it was, boy. I can't get over you. And then... Isn't that something? Boyfriend, girl's time. Isn't that something? Lord of mercy. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember Latavia rapping. I got her to do a little rap on Boyfriend. Especially when he wears his tailor suit. kind of made a rap with everybody who's at the studio at the time, you know what I mean? And actually when Beyonce came, it was funny, when we would do a lot of recordings in the record plant back in the day, she would be singing and and she was so little that you couldn't even see her in the vocal booth. And people would have to be like, where is the singer? I said, she's in there. You have to just look down. She would end up doing most of the harmony and most of the parts on a song. So she got it before everybody else got it for us harmonically. We tried a couple songs with Ashley by herself. She did okay. But then Beyonce started to do more stuff where she started to kind of leave. But Ashley still was the powerhouse because don't forget that the number one and two songs was Boyfriend and was Sunshine. Well, you brought up the song that really changed my whole outlook on the group because when Beyonce sang Sunshine, I thought, well, this is really, this is really something special. I mean, even today, if I had to pick a single, that would be the song. It's very uh, inspiring ballad. 
It's very uplifting message. And uh, Beyonce, she sang a hell out of it. She just had a certain presence on the microphone that was more important in the record. So I switched lead singers. I said, well, Beyonce, you're the lead singer. And Ashley, you're a good singer too, but I think I had Ashley sing lead on one song, but I had Beyonce on almost every song as the lead singer. And uh, that was because she was the person who was going to front the band. And so at the end of Sunshine, oh my God, Ashley would kill that song at the end of it. Up to this point, Ashley Davis had believed herself to be co-lead in the group with Beyonce. But now, things were starting to change. Mm, I want to say either Beyonce would start a song, I would come and finish a song, next day my voice would be gone, and I'm just doing backgrounds. (laughs) I would just... That's all I remember. I remember one song in particular because I sang lead on it and it was Sunshine. And, you know, um, yeah, that song in itself launched some things with them with my vocals on it, um, which was kind of hurtful. But, you know, it is what it is. Songwriter Tony Moe suggests another reason for the realignment. Beyonce was kind of getting pushed to be the lead and and the spotlight. It wasn't her more than it was probably her dad. The plant's Arnie Frager. And was their manager, but Matthew, he just struck me as the guy who was more than just a father who was interested. He, He struck me as a guy who really wanted to be involved He was always asking me many, many questions about the business. How does it work? Who are you going to call to try and get the girls a record deal? That kind of stuff. So her dad was the initial person who began to push her and say, you know, Ashley's too tall. Let's put Ashley in the back. And mainly because Ashley was Beyonce's only real competition. Matthew Knowles' account of this time is different. Well, I think a couple things that are important. Let's give a little context. At this point in time, I'm the number one sales rep in the world at Xerox. This was not my focus, girls' time. My focus was being a dad, also partnering with my former wife in a major hair salon. So, you know, people kind of get the picture a little muddy that, you know, I'm like really into this. (laughs) I'm not into it. I'm still just a dad showing up, picking up kids, taking them, dropping them off. But as an artist, I mean, Beyonce, she's not causing any fuss. She's just kind of going along. And uh, even when Ashley was on stage just then, I just seen her slumping a little bit. So I think she started to feel like she was too tall. You know, before the group, I had never experienced criticism. It wasn't until I was in the group, like I said, we all had different dynamics. You know, I was, um, I wasn't thick, but I was curvy. I had an overbite that was really bad. So I had braces at the time. Like I was even towering over some of the girls sometimes. So it made it look like I was bigger. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. 
And that was my first stint with comparisons. It just, the fun just got depleted eventually, and it became, you know, strenuous and on the business side, and things were changing, and last minute this to songs, and who sings what, and it just, yeah. As the recording sessions wound down, and with all the money and hopes riding on breaking through with girls' time, it was time for the team to make their move. Lonnie Jackson explains. We were putting a song together in Sausalito, definitely, to try to get a record deal and and getting a deal. I think we did 15 songs, I think 12 that I thought should go on the album. I had been shopping and pitching execs at labels for many, many years to a point where I had enough success I could get in to see the top decision makers at pretty much every record label. So after the girls left and we had finished the record, I went to L.A. and New York, and I presented their recordings to every major executive at every major record company. I was at that time working with Prince, and I sent a couple of songs to Prince, who had started his own label. I called him up because I was on a first-name basis and I was speaking to him on the phone on a regular basis. I called him up and I said, look, there's these six little girls. You ought to think about signing them to your label. He called me up the next week and said, yeah, this is great. I love these girls. I'm going to sign them. He was very excited about it. And then next week he, he lost interest. It wasn't just Prince who turned them down. Nothing was coming through. They needed a change of plan. In order to gain exposure, the girls did media appearances, like this one, on a local TV show in Houston. This is Beyonce. Now tell me about getting over the stage, right? I mean, how did this go from having fun and singing for a few people to where, I mean, you're going to go out there and you're going to try to make it big? Well, (laughs) I guess... If we keep on practicing and practicing and we keep on performing, every time we get better and the stage fright just fades away. Fades away. Another tool they used, one particular to the record industry, was to have girls' time perform at showcases, live sets put on with one single underlying purpose. It was for us to get a record deal. So those were the big deals back then, you know, like doing these showcases, put you in front of executives, record executives. Like that was the thing, boy. I remember we were be nervous. And these showcases were packed. They weren't like private. They were packed. I put them on a live showcase at a club in San Francisco called Bimbo's. Uh, Bimbo's is an interesting place. It's an old 1920s speakeasy. And I rented it. I forget what it cost, but it wasn't cheap. Arnie included a bunch of industry heavyweights on the invite list. People with connections to places like Motown and Jive Records. I rented it for a night because it had like nightclub tables and a real environment and a real stage. I remember this was like one of our first big stages. To us, it was big. They're currently recording their first album at the Plant Recording Studios here in South Salido. Let's give it up for girls time, y'all. The night of the showcase at Bimbo's, it seemed like everyone was there. And the girls were spectacular. Don't 
and they performed. They all had these little headsets that allow you to move around and dance, and they put on a great show. And there were a lot of people interested at that show. But in the end... You know, when it comes to doing big deals and, and having big things happen, timing has a lot to do with everything. I was surprised that we put on a really great show and we didn't get anything out of it other than exposure. Even the heavyweights faded away after the bimbo showcase. I do remember that. I remember some other business stuff going down where we weren't privy to. And I'm not just saying me, we, me, my mom and dad. The girls' parents weren't privy to. And so, you know, it, you know, it's certain points in your life where you can look at photos and you remember exactly how you felt. And I remember feeling so sad. The Sausalito thing was very dark. And I remember the room was dark. The stage was dark. The venue was dark. Backstage was dark. And spiritually, it was, it was a dark time. As time went on, it became clear that everybody's sure thing was becoming a tougher and tougher sell. I don't remember how long I pushed it, but I shopped it for at least a year. I got basically, yeah, it's a good record. Yeah, the little girls are really cute. I, I mean, I, I got a lot of reaction, but I did not get one offer on the girls for a record deal. The most important thing that a manager does with a new artist that doesn't know the business is to tell them, you aren't going to make it overnight. This isn't going to be an easy road. This is going to be difficult. There are going to be obstacles and there's going to be setbacks. And people say, are you a manager? I say, yeah, I manage people's expectations. Arnie began to manage his own expectations as well. By mid-1992, Arnie Frager had exhausted nearly every avenue. He'd talked to everyone he knew and seemingly everyone he didn't. But this great idea for a young all-girl band was going bust. Dreams of being the next en vogue were slowly slipping away. But Arnie took one last swing. This time, he aimed for the stars and national television. Next time on Making Beyonce, the great TV exposure talent show of its time, Star Search. We never thought who our competition was going to be. We knew we were the best of the best, so when we get up against this rock band, we're like, huh? They had it together. They were impressive. It wasn't like you thought, oh, they're good for their age. They're just good. And things come to a head. After the studio, there was a lot of arguing about the group, who was going to be the singer. And there was some meetings that were really, I hate to even say it, but ugly. Be sure that you're subscribed to Making Beyonce on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss a single episode. Making Beyonce is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jill Hopkins. The senior producer is Joe Dussault. The executive producer is Brendan Banizak. And the managing director is Kevin Dawson. Our engineer is Shelley Steffens. Production help from Jen White, Meha Ahmad, and Justin Bull. <laughs> <laughs>